Um, we're continuing in a, a series on the book of Joshua, and we are moving into chapter 3 this week. Normally, our pattern is that we, we stand together and we, uh, we read God's Word to honor the fact that it's God's Word and not our own, but we're looking at over two chapters today, and so I'm not going to make you stand for that long. Um, I'll just read the passage as we work through it this morning, so I hope that you uh, forgive me if that's like just really deep down in your soul and you can't handle it, but I think most of you will be quite accommodating. Um, but let's, let's pray here, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Joshua. I thank you for the way that you um, teach us through ancient stories, and the way you've been working through history to bring about a redemption for a people, for your own possession. God, we love you. We want to hear your word. I pray that my words would be faithful to yours. I wouldn't speak anything you wouldn't have me speak. God, tune our hearts to obedience and truth this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Like I said, we are, we're looking at a larger piece of Scripture this morning. And so if you kind of want to get ready with me, we're going to be in Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 and all the way up to the first verse of chapter 5. So if you want to flip, turn, swipe, click to Joshua 3, that would be great. If you need a Bible, just throw your hand in the air casually and someone will bring you around a Bible. We have some free ones you're welcome to take home or just use for the morning. Um, but we're going to be in Joshua 3 this morning. Kind of set the stage, like I said, we have a few new faces here and want to kind of orient us. What we have here is, in the book of Joshua, is the story of the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, coming in to take possession of the land of Canaan, or, or what we might know today as the land where Israel is, or, or the land of Palestine. And, and they weren't in this land because they had been enslaved in Egypt for a period of about 400 years. And yet this land had been promised to their forefathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, um, but it wasn't theirs to have yet. And what we have in the book of Joshua is God making good on his promise to give this land to his people. And they have wandered in the wilderness after they left Egypt for a period of about 40 years because of their disobedience, because of their sin, and God would not let them move into the land and take possession of it. Now they have uh, conquered two kings east of the Jordan River, uh, a river that flows between the Sea of Galilee and the, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. And they are on the eastern shore, more or less, of that, in a, in a town in an area called Shittim. And that's where we pick up this morning. Uh, last week, we read about the fact that they sent spies out across the river into the town of Jericho, which is this major fortified city on the western bank of not quite the bank, but just inland a little bit, of, of the Jordan River. And it's going to be their first military target. And so they sent spies out. Those spies meant this woman named Rahab, who was a prostitute. And this woman, this prostitute, had heard about all the things that God had done for them and so preserved those spies' lives when the king heard that they were there and certainly would have wanted to execute them or imprison them, or get their information from them. And so we see the first example in the book of Joshua of a Gentile, a non-Jew, a non-Israelite, coming to faith in the God of the universe. 
The spies return with a good report, and we pick up here in chapter 3. And I'm just going to read the first few verses here, and we'll dig in. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. You have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So here we are. We're at the banks of the Jordan River. They have left Shittim, which, as I told you last week, is my favorite biblical place name um, because, well, you were here. Um, you know why it's my favorite. Um, because I love the acacia groves. Uh, Shittim means acacia groves, and I love acacia groves. But um, they came to the Jordan. They, they're, they're all there. They're going to they're spend the night, actually going to spend a couple nights here on the banks of the Jordan River. And they give this command throughout all the Israelites, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now this is a difference. If you follow the early... Old Testament books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know that as the Israelites left Egypt and moved through the wilderness, they had a very specific formation. They had a very specific method of moving out from place to place. They had the, the tabernacle, which is the sort of their mobile temple. All right? It was designed that it could move with God's people so that God's presence would be with his people. And it was set up with, with all the priests and all those who served in the temple and, and handled those uh, sacred objects. That was the tribe of the Levites. They were set up in the center of all the tribes. The 12 other tribes of Israel, three on the north, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west, and that's how they moved out from place to place. Very regimented, very militaristic, because they were a people on the move. They were becoming a, a military force. And so what we see here is something very different. They're going to break from that pattern. As they begin to enter into the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised them that he's going to take them, they break that pattern. And what we see here is that the Levites, specifically the Levitical priests, are going to take the Ark of the Covenant in front of them. So rather than being in the midst of them anymore, uh, the, the ark is going to go out before them. Now the ark, specifically, uh, if you don't remember, if you haven't read that part, the ark is a, a box, a chest, that contained three things. It, it contained the Ten Commandments that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai. It contained Aaron's staff, Moses' brother's staff, which budded when the Israelites that Aaron's not the only one who can be a priest. We can all be priests, and they kind of rebelled against them, and God did a, a miraculous sign that his staff, this dead stick, uh, bore buds and, and sort of came to life. Um, 
and, and that was a sign to them that Aaron was chosen for this priesthood and not their leaders. And it also included manna. Uh, manna was the food that God sustained the Israelites with in their time in the wilderness. When they, they didn't have anything to eat, God provided them with manna, which literally means, what is it? Uh, because they didn't know what it was, so they called it, what is it? And, and they saved a small portion of that, kept it in the ark as a memorial of what God had done. And the ark was sort of the central feature of the tabernacle. It would have been in the holiest of holy places in the tabernacle. And so the high priest, when he would go and, and offer sacrifice, he would enter that once a year. And that is um, figuratively, spiritually um, speaking, where God would meet with his people. So this is... This is uh, a very important symbol of God's presence. And here, in this case, God's presence is leaving the midst of his people as going before his people. And there's a couple of things that we should note about it. This ark is going to go into the Jordan River in front of them, and they are to maintain a distance of 2,000 cubits. What is that? Okay, that's about 3,000 feet or so. We're looking at about a one kilometer distance. There's a huge distance between the people and this ark. As um, one scholar put it, there is this tension, and I'm going to paraphrase him, but there's this tension in the Bible between God being incredibly near to his people and God being wholly other from his people and completely separate from his people. And we have to respect both of those. This is the God who wants to dwell among us, but also the God who is so holy that we don't belong in His presence. And we neglect that tension at our own peril. And sometimes in the church, we, we neglect one of those. Sometimes we make God so holy, so amazing that we can't touch Him. And sometimes we go too far the other way that we almost treat Him just casually, like, a, like some dude, you know. And, and that's not right either. But, so God deserves sort of this holy reverence. But the reasoning here for why they are Keeping this distance is really interesting. In verse 4, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go for you have not passed this way before. Literally, you might think to yourself, okay, so the, we don't know where we're going. We've never been in Canaan. We've never been in this land before. And so the ark's going to go in front of us and show us the way. And that's probably true. The ark's going to go into the Jordan uh, before they go. And, and we're going to see that very often God's presence as represented in the ark is going to go before them. But there's probably a moral dimension to this also. So that in the Old Testament, when, when uh, we talk about the way that you should go, it's not always a physical, literal path like the destination. Here's, here's how you get from Cleveland to Cleveland Heights, or, or this is how you get from, from Boston to New York. But the way in which you should go is the way in which you should conduct yourself, the way in which you're to live, the way in which you are to move and have your being in light of this God who has called you. And what we see is if you want to know the way that God is calling you to live, you need to follow after God, recognizing His holiness and yet his near presence to us. When we keep those things and we have a right understanding of who God is, we see clearly the way that we are supposed to take. 
so often I think we, we struggle as, as Christians with, with what does God want for my life? What, is, what does God want for me? What, what is the, the purpose for my life? What am I supposed to do next? Let me suggest that at least part of that answer comes from having a right understanding of who God is. When we are willing to follow hard after God while recognizing that He is both holy and we would say transcendent is the big theological term, he's apart from us. And yet, he loves us like a father and he is near to us. The big theological word is he's imminent. And we see that that, that sort of dual pulse of God's heart. We start to see more clearly how he wants us to live and move and have our being. And then the final command here is that the people consecrate themselves. What they're about to do requires them also to be holy. The consecration of of the Israelites would have probably involved a number of ceremonial washings, uh, ritualistic washings and things like that to symbolize purity. They probably abstained from sexual relations, things, things of that nature to symbolize purity before they did this. They're about to enter into a battlefield. They are about to follow hard after Yahweh. And in order to do that, they need to be a set-apart, a sacred people. And so we need to recognize that here too. That if we want to follow hard after God, that we need to be a people that's consecrated. And I don't mean that we need to do some ceremonial washings and, and abstain from sexual relations. I mean that we need to see ourselves as a people that are set apart for God's purposes. And until we set set ourselves apart, we recognize ourselves as a people set apart for God's purposes, it will be impossible to follow God the way he's commanded us. Let's look at the next few verses here. Uh, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So this is something we've talked about early on, is that there was this tension in Joshua. Joshua is being called as the replacement for Moses after Moses died. Will the people of Israel accept him? Will he be a faithful leader like Moses will be? And will the people follow him? And so God tells Joshua, you will be exalted, and I'm going to do it. I am going to make you great in their eyes. So there's going to be no question that you are the one that I have chosen to have them follow. And here's how it's going to be done. He says, as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord our God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail Drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So here's what's going on. God is telling Joshua what's going to happen. Joshua tells the people what's going to happen. So that when it happens, they're going to say, whoa, this guy Joshua is a prophet. He knew the future, 
before it could happen. God is with him because God told him it was going to happen. He said it was going to happen, and then it's going to happen. We'll see here in a second that it will happen. But what is in Joshua's command is really important for us. Specifically, he says, this is how you'll know the living God is among you. And so, first of all, let's remember that we serve the living God, as opposed to the God of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. These are a collection of peoples, uh, some of whom we know from archaeology and from history, some of whom are, are lost to us. Some of them are more significant groups, but they are intended to be representative of all the groups that, that lived in the land. And they worship all sorts of false gods. And from the perspective of the Israelites, from the perspective of the people of faith, there is one God who is alive, who is living, Yahweh. And all other claimants to that title God are pretenders. They're dead. They're idols. They're mute. They're deaf. They're dumb. They're worthless. And the Israelites are about to walk into a land that is full of idolatry, full of perversions, full of false gods, full of, of, of wicked ideas of what God is like and what God desires of us. And they need to know that this Yahweh that they worship is the only one that matters because he's the only one who's real. And I think that that might sound familiar. We too, more and more, increasingly so, live in a land, and we live in a world certainly, with plenty of pretenders to the throne. Plenty of deities that would lay claim to being the deity. And plenty of people who worship those false gods in ways that God would not honor and God would not be honored by. And we walk and we live in the midst of those things and we need to have a strong idea of who the living God is. And so what Joshua has them do is he says, grab 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think what's going on here is he's asking them to be present when these Levites go into the water. So the, the Levite priests are going to go into the water with the ark. The waters are going to dry up, he says, and there's going to be 12 witnesses. There's going to be a witness from each tribe who can bring a message back and say, I saw it with my eyes. I saw what God did. It's real, it's true. We need to believe in this God. And so we grab these 12 individuals to see it, and then we come to the climax of this portion of Scripture. And listen to how drawn out this is. And I want to I mention this too. At this point in the text, the chronology gets thrown aside. The author is so concerned with the amazingness and the, and the power of this miraculous event that he throws chronology aside 
and is focused on pointing us to the majesty of the event and not necessarily dictating a strict A happened, then B happened, then C happened, then D happened. All right, so we see in verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, parentheses, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. You know, drawn out, that is, that it, it just all these, these little details. But here's what we see. We, we have this, this picture of we're kind of the, the camera has hand to sort of behind the Jordan line from the, from the standpoint of the Israelite people standing behind the Levites. And, and these, these priests walk into the river with the ark that includes the, the Ten Commandments, that includes the, the manna, that includes Aaron's staff. And as soon as their feet touch the brink of the water, the waters recede and dry up. We don't often see a river in flood stage in, in our country or much of the modern world because we do so much work to build up the banks of our rivers and to put dams in them and do all kinds of things because we see flooding as dangerous. But in the ancient world, flooding was absolutely necessary. Um, that flooding allowed the, the soil on the banks of the river to become fertile so that there's at least some area to farm. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the Middle East is not very you know, pliable in terms of farming. Um, and, and so these areas around the riverbanks were the areas that you could actually sustain civilizations. And so this isn't, they are crossing probably March, April. That's the time when the, the river would have been in its flood stage. The winter snows have, have melted off. And it's a, the time of the initial summer, what they would consider the initial summer harvest. There, there's certain crops that would have been ready for harvesting at this time. And this is not a very crossable river. And there's, there's a couple things that are really interesting about this. They could have crossed at a different time. There, there would have been times, you know, later in the year where, the, where the, maybe before the snows came, where the Jordan River would have been thin and narrow, where there have been some shallow places where they could have easily come across the river. They could have done that. But that's not what God intended. Because God intended to show off His glory. God intended to show off His majesty. And so, if you could imagine the Cuyahoga River, uh, we were a little bit more familiar with it, and you can imagine maybe, if you've ever been out in the towpath a little ways, uh, go down on the trail a little bit and get away from the city and all the industrialized nature, and so you can kind of really see the banks of the river, and just imagine that they weren't built up as much, and, and, and it's um, you know a month or two from now, and the river is really high because of all the well snow that we don't have. But and, it, and it's it's overflowing the banks, and you can imagine the ground is you start to step in it, and it's, you know it's getting squishy, you know, and, and and your your feet sink into that mud. And uh, I've been in situations like that when I've been out hiking or camping or whatever, you know, and. I remember one time I was in Cub Scouts and 
I think it was Cub Scouts, and, and one of the guys, I think his name was Steve, um, you know, he walked into some of that kind of mud on the, the banks of the, the river, and his shoe sunk into the mud so that when he pulled it out, his shoe stayed in the mud, and his foot came out. I mean, it's just, it's thick, it's mucky. And they're right on that edge of, of this really kind of marshy area, and it says that the, the, the waters were completely cut off, and it said, now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And so we probably focus on this miracle that the waters got cut off up north. Uh, 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 Adam is a city, I don't know, 10, 20 miles north, um, where one of the tributaries of the Jordan flows into the Jordan River. And we're probably focused on that miracle, but but think for a second of the fact that not only were those waters pulled up to that point, but the riverbed itself was dry. That their feet weren't sticking into it. That their sandals weren't getting stuck while their feet came out. The ground was dry. And so this, this is a non-natural phenomenon. You can't try to historically recreate this by suggesting some sort of natural phenomenon that pulled the river up to the north and dried out the entire riverbed you know, in the period of at most you know, 18 hours so that they could, at most, so that they could walk across. It, you know, this is an absolutely miraculous event. And it becomes one of the standard bearers for what God has done for the people of Israel. It is parallel to the Red Sea crossing when they left Egypt. And it's a sign of how this God, Yahweh, works amazing works in them. And look what happens as we move through verse 4, or chapter 4, excuse me. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, Again, the chronology is twisting around because he wants to keep bringing us back to the same event. So I think these are the same 12 people. From each tribe of man, command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. And later on, we see that um, it says Joshua had set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. And again, but trying to make sense of the chronology for you here, it looks like what happened is Joshua set up 12 stones near where the priests were standing with the ark in the river to, to memorialize what was going on. And then these 12 men, each from the tribe of Israel who had witnessed the event, took one stone apiece out of the Jordan River. I witnessed this, and they're going to take this to where they spend the night. The twelve stones from, the, from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 
When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. They took up the twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. You're hearing this obedience. They're following Joshua just like they followed Moses. And they carried them over with them to a place where they had lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. Do we remember what God has done? What these Israelites did here was they were taking stones that symbolized and came out of that very day that God did something fantastic, that did something amazing, that did something that had never been done before except by God at the Red Sea. You know, this is something only God could do. And they have chosen they're going to take stones and they're going to set them there so that when their kids say, why do you have these stones here? Let me tell you why we have these stones here. Because God did a miracle. God took us, this ragtag bunch of Israelites, and He brought us across the Jordan River by His great power so that we could take this land. Sometimes I think we are afraid of symbols. We're afraid of symbolism. But I don't think we should be. They're reminders Sometimes we just become too familiar with them. There's a reason why we, we have a cross that we put in our churches, right? So that when my children ask me, why is there a cross here? Well, the reason why we have a cross here is because once upon a time, God did something amazing. The reason why I put a cross on my, my home, Jonah, my son, or, or Micah, my son, or Elijah, my son, or Silas, because the reason why we have a cross in the church, or, or why I might even put a cross around my neck sometimes, is because a couple thousand years ago, God, knowing that, that I was a sinner, and, and knowing that I had rebelled against Him, had mercy on me. And he, and he loved me. And He was good to me. And He sent his son, to die on something that looked kind of like that. And in so doing, in all of his perfection and all of his righteousness, he took my sin on himself. And he died so that ultimately I don't have to die. So that I can spend eternity with God. And that, that, that promise isn't just for me, but it's for for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And, and we don't even see Jesus up on that cross because we know He came down from that cross and he, he rose from the dead because death couldn't hold Him. And so when I see the cross, it reminds me of that. That's why we have a cross on the wall. That's why we have a cross in our house. That's why I sometimes have a cross around my neck. The symbols are powerful things. And the Israelites were going to remember that this God chose them even though they were unworthy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they weren't special. They weren't, there was nothing intrinsic in them that, that God said you're better than the rest of the people of the world. 
But God said, I want you for my people. And so, for my sake, God said, not for your sake, I'm going to create you into a people. And I'm going to drive out these nations before you. And I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you inheritance. I'm going to give you... And so it's going to be a symbol of God's goodness. In following God, we need to remember the acts that God has done for us. They are reminders to us of how He's been faithful to us, how He's been good to us, and they are promises that He will continue His faithfulness and His goodness to us. And for us as Christians, that first symbol, that first reminder, is always the cross of Jesus Christ. The people passed over in haste, which is amazing. Not because they were running, not because they were in a hurry, because the ground was so freaking dry that they just walked across the thing. This should have been a slow trudge across a river. And they were able to walk across in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This was the question. There was the, a, few, a couple of the tribes of Israel had a possession on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And Moses had told them, as God had told them, I will let you inherit land east of the river, but you have to go and fight with your brothers. And the Joshua chapter 1, they promised that they would. In Joshua chapter 4, we see them making good on their word. They are going across the Jordan River with their brothers in arms. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle. The plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And so now all the Israelites have crossed over. They're on the western bank of the Jordan River. Even the Rubens, Rubenites, even the uh, half-tribe of the Manassites, they've, they've all come across, and now the camera angle changes. And the, the camera angle has changed from the eastern side in the Israel, uh, Israelite camp to the western side, and we're, we're looking at the Israelites from the perspective of the Canaanites from the perspective of those living in Jericho. The camera has panned, and instead of crossing the river, listen here. And the Lord said to Joshua, verse 15, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. And from now on else, in, in, the, in the book of Joshua, we're going to see that the camera lens is sort of painted as this, this force coming up out of the Jordan River. We're not crossing over, we're coming up out of it. Joshua commanded the priests, come out of the Jordan. Come up out of the Jordan. When the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks as before. That's pretty freaking amazing. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. That's an interesting date. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. 
They came up out of the Jordan, the, the Hebrew reckoning, uh, the first month of the year is not January. You know, it's not our, it doesn't follow our calendar, what we call the Gregorian calendar. But the first month for the Jews was also the month in which they celebrated Passover. When they celebrated God's deliverance of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. When God passed over the Israelite people on the basis of the fact that they had slaughtered a lamb and painted the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, the tenth day of the first month would have corresponded to the day in which, if you remember uh, from the law of the Old Testament, that they would have chosen a lamb from their flock and brought it into their homes to dwell with them for a week before they slaughtered that lamb. And so we're seeing that just as God took them out of Egypt, He is taking them out of the eastern bank of Mesopotamia and into the land of Canaan. Those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. You get the idea how important this is to memorialize what God has done. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up for us until we passed over. That all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Why did God do it this way? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. God brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan in the way that He did so that He would be magnified. That He would be glorified. And then the very next verse, it's unfortunate that we have a chapter break here because there really shouldn't be. The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. They were in awe of God. Now there's, there's two types of, of awe. There's two types of fear. There's a, a fear of God that leads to reverence. And there's a fear of God that leads to cowering despair. What's amazing here is that word of God's Amazing power and mighty hand went 
throughout the land of Canaan. The message of God's salvation was brought to the kings and rulers and leaders and even the commoners of Canaan. But what you do with that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? We saw in the last chapter, and the words here are almost an echo of Rahab's own words. Rahab heard of the amazing acts that God had done at the Red Sea and the amazing acts that God had done by taking this little ragtag bunch of Israelites to defeat the kingdom of Og and, and, and the kingdom of Sihon. And, of Sihon. And, and as a result of that, she turned her life, she repented of her false worship of the Canaanite deities and turned her loyalty and her attention to Yahweh, the living God. But the kings of the Canaanites and the kings of the Amorites, they heard of God's amazing work for the people of Israel, and their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them. They heard of God's amazing work, and they despaired. So not all awe, not all fear is created equally. How we direct that, that fear makes a difference. But make no mistake that God's amazing works in this world are designed to glorify Him and to spread the message of Him across this earth. So that Jesus Himself said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. And so it's been true. The message of Jesus Christ has gone out to all the earth and has been responded to in different ways. Sometimes it has been responded with disbelief and disregard and mock and scorn. Sometimes it has been met with a, a terror, but a terror that leads to despair and falling away. And sometimes, sometimes that fear and recognition of God's power has led people to throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ to be lifted up alongside Him. We look at Joshua's chapters 3, 4, and 5. I know there's a lot of content here. But there's a few things that, that stick out that are significant for us. One, Whatever it is that God is calling us to do, whatever it is that God is asking us to be, whatever He's calling us to do as a people, it doesn't happen unless God goes before us. That's first and foremost. But we serve a God who does go before us, and that should give us confidence as fellow Christians and the things that He's called us to do. When God tells us to go and preach this Gospel to all the world, we have confidence that it is God who has gone before us in that mission. That He has paved the way. That He has dried up the Jordan River so that that message can be heard. God is the one who goes before us. 
that God is near us and with us and close to us. And so we have confidence that He is on our side. And yet, He is so holy and so perfect and beyond us that we stand in fear and reverence of Him. We have this tension in us that we neglect to our own peril. God is willing to do amazing things. Miraculous things. Powerful things. In order to make His majesty and His glory and His goodness known. And preeminently, we know that happened in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most miraculous, the most gloriful, the most uh, glorious, the most uh, magnificent act in all of human history. That God became man and took on Himself the penalty for our our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God, our transgressions, our sins, and so offered us a path to life. Thirdly, that we forget to memorialize things at our own peril. That we need to remember and recall the great deeds of God. We can never lose sight of the cross. So common for Christians to to think that the cross is, is the starting point of the Christian faith. And then we move on to deeper and more powerful things. The cross isn't the starting point. The cross is the only point. The cross is where we begin and the cross is where we return daily. Daily take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. We are always coming back to the cross because we are constantly in need of grace. We realize that any, any power we have from this life comes from surrendering all the power that we think we have. All the goodness we have in this life comes from surrendering all the goodness we think that we have. That our highest aspirations are only fully met when we lay down all that we have at the foot of the cross and say, all of this is nothing compared to the life that you offer me, Jesus. And so we go back there constantly. And we're constantly being drawn away from that cross by the world. And that's why we constantly go back. We need to remember these things that God has done for us always. And we remember that while God's miraculous works are ultimately From the the Israelites' perspective, what God was doing had a great benefit to them. Right? It it led them into the land. It it was going to give them a possession in the land. It's going to give them a home. It's going to give them riches. It's going to give them wealth. At least relatively speaking. It had a lot of tangential benefits for them. But we we miss everything if we miss the fact that the magnificent acts of God are not ultimately about us. They're ultimately about God. And that He is the one who deserves all glory. And He is the one that deserves all praise. And so while God's drying up the Jordan River was a fantastic event that provided all kinds of goodness for the Israelites, at the same time, 
the end reason for that was that the nations of the earth, the nations of the earth would hear that the hand of God, the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so ultimately, God is glorifying God. And He invites us to participate in that great and amazing story. Let's pray. Father God, just thank You for what You're doing among us, what You've done in the past. May we constantly go back to your cross. And may we constantly remember what you were up to. God, even as your people crossed into the promised land, the land of Canaan, so God, by your miraculous acts on the cross, you are leading us to a new home and a new land where we will enjoy you forever in peace. May we put our hope there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.